Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England. This is episode 388, Runaway Down. Last time there we were, folks, girding our loins before the fightiness to come. This is a phrase, I have to say, which raises disturbing images in my mind. But look, we were preparing ourselves, essentially. We'd heard about how Charles's constant desire to get involved in secret plans and clever tricks had blown his chances of building a sympathetic party in both Scotland and England. The Scottish commissioners were messed about and finally abandoned Oxford in dudgeon higher than Scarfell Pike and went home to look for other friends, where they found Harry Vane from the English Parliament waiting to talk to them. They will start to discuss a covenant. The Waller plot in London further sullied any remaining trust in his good faith in England. The Oxford Treaty has failed so that in April 1643, Essex's main army would finally start trundling out of London. Henrietta Maria is working her way south from Bridlington to arrive in Oxford with arms for Charlie and into the welcoming arms of Charlie. So, here we go. Game on. Pistols at dawn. What I'm going to do is work my way around the country, but just a preliminary word before we do. As I said last week, the story of the civil wars are of a vast number of local conflicts of a full range of sizes from a little tiny handful of people and all points north of that up to 25,000 plus. To give you a couple of examples from my own hood, let me introduce you to one Samuel Luke. Samuel Luke was the parliamentarian scoutmaster in the South Midlands, amongst other things, and we have still some of his journals remaining. 
1643, he recorded that some royalist cavaliers appeared in the little village of Nettlebed, which is just a mile down the road from me, and two men were shot in the conflict. In January 1643, a body of royalist soldiers appeared in the fair town of Henley-on-Thames from the then royalist garrison at Reading, and we have the glorious and yet surprisingly poorly known story of the Battle of Duck Street, now Duke Street, which is a very nice bakery, I have to tell you, that does fantastic bacon rolls. Now, Henley was a parliamentary town, bossed by the local gentry Bolstrode Whitelock and Bartholomew Hall, and they chased the Catholic Plowdens out of town. So, there happened to be a contingent of parliamentary soldiers in town at the time, and they quickly placed a cannon at the top of Duke Street, filled with something more deadly than bacon rolls, and they opened fire. The Royalists decided that, look, there was Lardy Cape back at Reading, and they hastily retreated. There were about eight or nine dead in this mighty Battle of Duck Street, and their names appear with a note in the Henley Church Register of Deaths, Births and Marriages for that year. Look, I won't warble on too much about Henley-on-Thames, but look, later in 1643, Prince Rupert himself was in town, and he stayed the night. The place he reputedly stayed is now a primary school called Rupert House. I do not know if inmates of said school are also told that Rupi hung a man from a tree at Northfield End, which, as you might suspect from the name, is a field at the northern end of the town. I know I should not be telling you all of this, but it's only a spot of local history from where I live. But my point is about this, why I'm telling you, is that violence is endemic, especially in the light of all these garrisons around. Henley, for a while in 1644, had two garrisons slugging it out. The Civil War is local. It gets everywhere like a rash. Then, there are a whole load of regional battles, and like the young man of devises, they are of various sizes. Hopton's victory at Stratton, just for one of them, would have 3,500 royalists and 6,000 parliamentarians. I promise I will not cover more than a fraction of these, but there will be some that I do talk about, and there will be some today. Then, there were five set-piece battles in the four years of the English Civil War, which had more than 25,000 men involved. They are Edge Hill, Newbury times two, Marston Moor and Naseby. Note a bene that four of these are in the Midlands, by the way. By point of comparison, just to give you a point of reference, battles in the Thirty Years' War routinely included over 40,000 men. So I want to tell you that the scale is very different of those big armies, but the work of historians such as Charles Carlson has very clearly demonstrated that the scale is nonetheless very significant. And it is worth remembering at the same time that there were 38 major extended sieges and several hundred lesser sieges, several hundred ladies and gentlemen. In each year, there were around 150,000 men under military discipline. That is about 10% of the male population between 16 and 50. Probably about 30% of adult males bore arms at some point. This is a big number. The Civil War is coming to you. It is local. One more word. If you love this sort of thing, if this is your meat, drink and your daily bread or all major points of the compass, then you might like to consider Nick Lipscomb's utterly beautiful military atlas, The English Civil War. Obviously, young Nick knew he was going to get a pasting for not calling the British Civil War, so he gave it a subtitle, An Atlas and Concise History of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. A token effort, 
not enough to save him from displeasure. It has to be said, look, it's not cheap, but it is worth every single halfpenny, farthing and groat. OK, so let us, in the words of Olivia, get physical. I am going to start in the west and southwest of England. And I give you fair warning, we're going to challenge our knowledge of English geography here. Sorry about that. I will try and put maps on the website. So let me start with Ralph Hopton, a man in his mid-40s in 1643, happily married to Elizabeth Capel, though they were childless, an MP for his hometown of Wells near Bath. He already had military experience. He'd fought in the Thirty Years' War. At one stage, he rescued Elizabeth the Winter Queen, who was clung to him at the, on the back of his horse to escape. He'd shared that experience, actually, with a man called William Waller, about whom we've heard a little bit, and they'd become firm friends. Though Hopton had returned to the Thirty Years' War again later and fought for the Protestant powers once more. At the short Parliament in 1640, he had demanded reform of the Laudian Church, as had most MPs, as we know. But that was as far as it went. He then argued against the remonstrance. He defended Charles's actions in trying to arrest the five members, actually. So when the shooting started, he'd quickly come to the royalist side. A man of great honour, integrity and piety, of great courage and industry, and an excellent officer for any command but the supreme, for which he was not equal. This was Clarendon's judgment of the man. In Charles's cabinet of military leaders, he was in the toppy drawers kind of thing. He was deeply religious in a puritanical line, carefully allowing time for soldiers to complete their devotions before battle. And he was one of those commanders who punished vice and transgressions very severely. A team player, unlike the vast majority of his royalist compatriot commanders, I have to say. But he was popular amongst the others. He worked well in joint commands. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Ralph Hopton. He had successfully secured one of the most staunchly royalist areas in Cornwall and sent Parliament packing, but was repulsed more than once when trying to actually break out into Devon to move eastwards towards Bath and Bristol, where the big battles could be fought. But in May 1643, he then won a stunning victory over the Parliamentary General, the Earl of Stamford at a place called Stratton, aforementioned, a victory clinched by his Cornish footman carrying an assault on entrenched artillery positions up the appropriately named Stamford Hill, which nonetheless didn't save his namesake from defeat. Over 1,700 were taken prisoner. Hopton was free. He marched eastwards, past Exeter, onto Somerset towards Bath, linking up with Royalist commanders Morris of the Palatinate, Prince Rupert's little bro. This was going to bring him into conflict with his friend William Waller. After their shared Prague adventure, Waller had not returned to the Thirty Years' War. His path instead led to the good life in Hampshire in the south, with his second wife, Anne Finch, of whom Waller wrote, I may say we were as but one soul in two bodies. Happy together with a growing family, Waller and Anne seemed to have found their possibly unextraordinary destiny and were due to stay firmly out of the history books. I desired no greater preferment than to be my own man, he wrote, which is a worthy ambition. Possibly his namesake, Billy the Conk, would have been unimpressed. But when the crisis came, both William and Anne had no trouble choosing sides. On both constitutional and religious grounds, they were enthusiastic supporters of Parliament from very first light. 
Anne in particular was strongly Puritan and accompanied William on campaign, preaching to the troops, which I am forced to admit they did not always appreciate as much as they should, but William was happy enough. My pretty portable army, he called her. Anyway, enough of that. As I think we have mentioned, Waller raised his own regiment of horse, quickly rose through the ranks, and earned a string of early victories that earned him the glorious nickname William the Conqueror. In early 1643, Essex appointed him Major General in the West, and he fought in the Severn Valley, winning a couple of victories against Royalist armies in South Wales and again the South West. This meant, by June 1643, he faced the prospect of meeting his old friend in battle, Ralph Hopton, coming towards him from the West. Which is where we come to another of those big, famous moments in the Civil War's history. As the hideous prospect of violence between them became not just possible but probable, Hopton wrote to his old friend from his HQ at Wells. He asked if they could meet. And Waller's reply has survived. I'm going to read it all to you. Sir, the experience I have of your worth and the happiness I have enjoyed in your friendship are wounding considerations when I look at this present distance between us. Certainly, my affection to you is so unchangeable that hostility itself cannot violate my friendship. But I must be true wherein the cause I serve. That great God, which is the searcher of my heart, knows what a sad sense I go about this service, and with what a perfect hatred I detest this war without an enemy. But I look upon it as the Lord's work, and that is enough to silence all passion in me. The God of peace in his good time will send us peace. In the meantime, we are upon the stage and must act those parts that are assigned to us in this tragedy, let us do so, in a way of honour and without personal animosities. Whatever the outcome, I will never willingly relinquish the title of your most affectionate friend. Oh, brings tears to the eyes. Waller's letter survives as a really rather beautiful, and I could have read it so much better, a really rather beautiful example of the kind of feelings many families, friends, communities must have experienced throughout the war. This war without an enemy must surely be the expression of the English Civil War. It's not that it wasn't brutal. It was. It's not that many would die, atrocities be committed, hatreds worked out in violence. But from the start... I've been keen to make this point that this was not a society that had any concept ten years before that it would come to this. The stream of peace proposals is already extensive and will stretch on, let me tell you. This is a revolution without a map, as I have said before, without the concept of creating a new society or tearing up the old. They just had to make it up as they were pulled into it by an engine whose nature bemused most of them. Why could this not be sorted out with just a bit of good sense and goodwill? Anyway, we'll leave Ralph and William approaching their unlooked-for showdown, and we'll come back to them later, and we'll now move our attention to the Thames Valley and the Midlands. We've already heard a little bit about this, about Prince Rupert's raids into the Midlands to link up with Henrietta Maria moving southward, so I won't do too much on the Midlands, except I think to mention a death and a walk. 
1643 then, we'll see the death of three giants of the early revolution, and the first of those will be Robert Greville, the 36-year-old Lord Brooke. He has been a firebrand in the junto, urging it on. He came from the Independence, a stable in religious terms, arguing in his 1640 book, The Nature of Truth, that Protestants should be able to find their own way to worship rather than being forced to follow a uniform established church, whether they be Presbyterian or Episcopalian or whatever. Like Cromwell, he argued in Parliament against hiring mercenaries or professionals in the army, as Charles was currently doing actually, in favour of those who fought for the sake of the cause. Brooke was shot dead by a sniper in Litchfield in March. Brooke had also fought at Edge Hill, and he had recruited one John Lilburn, who, as we have heard, was captured there too. And we're going to hear a lot about John Lilburn in this story, so I'm going to keep talking about him. Edge Hill focused the minds on a few fundamentals about the rules of war, and I have a couple of background notes, if you wouldn't mind, relevant to the way the war is fought. The main underpinning set of rules had been adopted by the time of 1640 in the Bishops' Wars. The Scots had started it when Alastair Leslie adapted Swedish Articles of War. And in 1640, Arundel, on the English side, implemented something called the Laws and Ordinances of War. On these documents were the Royalist and Parliamentary Articles of War based. And they're very similar between the two sides. So, blaspheming was first on the list, you'll be delighted to hear. The death penalty was prescribed for soldiers for over 40 offences, including rape, of course. Drunkenness was also punishable, with penalties more severe for officers. Only the Royalist Code, interesting enough, included a clause stipulating that no soldier was to consider himself above working on building fortifications. A clause apparently not required for parliamentary folk, who probably wouldn't have thought it surprising in the first place. Out to the impact of all these rules, well, they were as honoured in the breach as they were in compliance. But all armies did make quite strenuous efforts to enforce them along the way, traditionally more firmly in the parliamentary armies as it happens, and indeed in the godly new model after 1645. There are frequent examples of armies being marched past the bodies of gruesome hanged plunderers to make the point that they're not supposed to be doing this. In 1642, though, talking of John Lilburn, the English Parliament passed the Lex Talionis to deal with the problem of how captured prisoners were treated, and these would contribute to all the rules. Because the problem was nobody knew what they would be doing, so after the sack of Brentford, just before Turnham Green that we talked about, parliamentary soldiers, including Honest John, were threatened with execution for treason. That would have been chaos. The ordinance that resulted the Lex Talionis owed a lot to Elizabeth Lilburn, John's wife, whose marriage to John resulted in a life of, and I quote, tireless lobbying, shared prisons and much hardship. Conscious of her husband's incarceration in Oxford and that the Royalists planned to turn Honest John into Hanged John, she raised a petition to Parliament with others. The result was the Lex Talionis. It basically proposed a quid pro quo. Look, we'll treat prisoners the same as you. Elizabeth Lilburn was at the time pregnant, but nothing daughtered. Once the ordinance was passed, she took a printed ver version of it all the way from London to Oxford to make sure the royalists knew about this. As a result of that, 
John remained honest rather than hanged, and he was released in an exchange of prisoners, which then becomes much more standard. He seems to have appreciated his wife's determination. The gravest, wisest, finest messenger I could think of, and though a feminine, yet of a true, gallant, masculine spirit. I'm going to leave the question of whether or not praising his wife as being a true man is the right approach, and simply assume John meant it kindly. John returned to London, they sold their brewing business at a loss, and Lilburn went to join his friend Oliver Cromwell at the Eastern Association, which for Elizabeth meant a relatively quiet period at Boston in Lincolnshire for a while. It would not last. Thames Valley, though, we should talk about that. Finally, finally, Parliament realised that Charles was just messing with them over the Treaty of Oxford, and the war was back on, and Parliament's overall military commander reluctantly set off from London for war, Lord Essex. Now, given that Oxford and London were in effect the two towers, and I will leave it to you to decide which is Baradur and which is Minas Tirith, South Oxfordshire, which lay between them, could be considered the plains of Osgiliath, and as I warm to my theme, Old Father Thames be considered the mighty river Anduin which means that the town of Reading would be the famously beautiful but war-torn Osgiliath itself. Not sure the analogy is working anymore, I have to say. Sorry, Reading. But anyway, control of the Thames between Oxford and London was strategically critical. It was a major route of commerce. It was peppered with garrisons as a result. Reading, Henley, Wallingford. Essex wanted them all, and he parked it himself at Caversham, north of Reading, to lay siege to it. The royalist governor at Reading, incidentally, was one Arthur Aston, who was ill and had to leave to become the deeply unpopular and irascible governor of Oxford. That career came to an end when he had an accident, fell off his horse, he was forced to amputate a leg, which he replaced with a wooden one. He will re-enter our story at the siege of Drogheda in Ireland in 1649, and the wooden leg will play a part. Anyway, Essex captured Reading after 11 days, though Rupert tried and failed to relieve it. But then he dithers about. He wonders about attacking Oxford or not, and what in the end he does is march northward around the east of Oxford through South Oxfordshire along the bottom of the scarp of the Chiltern Hills until in June he occupied the town of Tame, about 40 miles from Oxford. He then dispersed his forces, I guess for foraging. I don't really know what he was doing, dithering essentially since he didn't have the guts to attack Oxford for some reason. Dispersing his men, of course, would make him more vulnerable, on which more in a moment. But what I wanted to mention first, by way of talking about how the war is carried on, is camp fever. Look, I read this paper from a local history group called Oxensiensis or some such by a man called John Bell, and he'd looked at all the population records from Caversham near Reading, where Essex was based, all along the route of the march northward to Tame. What his study showed is a trail of destruction, not from looting or plunder of any such, but from disease. I extended a little bit, actually, and even in pretty remote parishes with two old ladies and a dog called Bert and Buttercup the milking cow, you can see raised mortality rates around the dates of the march in all the parish records. And in Tame where the army then camps, it goes wild. It goes off the charts. 
I also had a more extended look at Henley, where in 1644 a parliamentarian garrison is established and the presence of such great densities of soldiers in basically unsanitary conditions that couldn't help was disastrous for the health of the citizens of the town in which they were placed. It's a fascinating little glimpse into one of the many horrors of the Civil War inflicted on people. With none of the headline of plunder or active violence or whatever, it's not just soldiers who die from disease and camp fever, the communities they move through get it too and they die. Anyway, there is then a small skirmish, given the grandiose title of a battle at Chalgrove, which I'm going to tell you about. And I'm going to tell you a bit of a story about that, if you will forgive me, and probably post a selfie of the monument there. So I was talking a little while ago of three giants of the early revolution who met their fate, and we've had one. You might remember that John Hamden was another, and he had raised a regiment to fight for Parliament, a contingent of about a thousand foot called the Greencoat, and I'm not going to tell you why he called them the Greencoats. Hamden had been at the Siege of Reading and under Essex's command. While around Tame, he was at the little town of Watlington under the Chiltern Hills inspecting defences and he stayed there for the night. There was, however, a traitor in Essex's army a Scotsman of Aberdeenshire called John Urry. John was a professional soldier. John was also miffed, because he had not been allocated the level of command he felt he richly deserved. Now, career and promotion-wise, John was a man in an hurry, and he thought he could get on a bit quicker by a bit of light-measured treachery. So, he got in touch with Prince Roops in Oxford, and gave him the lowdown on the disposition of Essex's army, which was very low of him. Uri is an interesting example, and he is not alone, of a man who will follow the money. He was knighted for this treachery, in fact, by the king in Oxford, but after the royal defeat at Marston Moor in whenever it was, he decided he didn't like the direction the royal cause was going in, and he was in no hurry to be involved in defeat. I'm going to stop the weak Uri pun now, by the way. And so he jumped ship, Again, he ended up in Scotland fighting against the royalist Montrose. And when Montrose swept the Covenanters before him like chaff, that's a story we're going to have fun with, he thought, hmm, that's interesting. And blow me down if he didn't switch sides again. This time, though, events caught up with him and he was beheaded in Edinburgh. So look, there are many men and women of great principled commitment in the civil wars. There are many who wanted nothing to do with it at all, and there are many for whom it provided interesting job, job opportunities and the chance to take an all-expenses-paid tour of the North Atlantic archipelago in search of gold and glory. Anyway, our palatine Rupert made hay of this information and he dashed out fair locks flowing free and with 1,700 men charged through Postcombe and Tetsworth dashingly and fell on the sleepy village of Chinner, where it was reported a huge cart of cash, pay for Essex's army, was waiting for him. Well, sadly, the cart managed to slip away in the chaos, hauled up into the wooded Chiltern Hills, which had for centuries been the hiding place for bandits and the desperate, nowadays also being generally stockbrokers. However, he did catch some soldiers unaware at Chinna and managed to kill about a hundred of them, dashingly. News of this raid then reached Hamden at Watlington. So he gathered his men, he sent off urgent messages to Essex, and he set off to hunt Rupert down as fast as he could. 
Although Rupert's force was probably mounted, the prisoners they'd taken were slowing them down. So the Prince of Darkness decided to turn and prepare an ambush for Hamden behind the locally named Great Hedge. But Hamden and the Greencoats were on them too fast, all looked good, until they suddenly realised there were far more royalists than they were. Probably twice as many. Rupert spotted this interesting little wrinkle as well. So he countercharged repeatedly, driving off the green coats and dashingly dashing back to Oxford, where there was much rejoicing and knighting of traitors of the right sort. Hamden, meanwhile, had taken a shot in the shoulder and was slumped over his horse. The wound didn't look serious, and they took him back to the Greyhound Inn on the Corn Market in Tame. I believe it's a Waitrose now. Anyway, the wound festered as wounds were wont to do in those days. And despite Charles sending his own physician to attend him, or so the legend goes, within four days, John Hamden, the Patriot, was dead. He is supposedly buried at his home church of Great Hamden, though the specific spot is unknown, and he left his wife Letitia Knowles and five children. Letitia was the sister of Francis Knowles, a gentry family at Grey's Court near Henley, so she'd have had plenty of support, hopefully, to deal with things. So another leader of the revolution was gone, not a revolutionary, but a solid and steady man of principle who wanted to restore what he believed to be the ancient and tested constitution of his country. His friend wrote sadly, Never kingdom received a greater loss in one subject, never a man, a truer and more faithful friend. He gets a good write-up by his opponent Clarendon as well, as it happens, who reckoned his skills to be of the unshowy type of good management and command on committees in the background, but he did make a number of influential speeches in the Commons as well. He basically retained a good reputation as an honest and principled patriot, financially comfortable, but with nothing like the grand background of the Junto members like Warwick, Bedford, Say and Seal. I am told, interestingly, that Benjamin Franklin and John Adams used Hamden as an example to throw in the faces of the British that, hey, rebellion can be patriotic, you know. And even the historian Conrad Russell seems to conclude he was a good egg, sick transit and all that sort of thing. His mum, Elizabeth Cromwell, had written way back in his youth, I am ambitious of my son's honour. I hope she was satisfied that at least in that way her hopes had been realised, though I doubt it was much compensation. And yes, Elizabeth Cromwell, as in that Cromwell, Oliver was John Hamden's cousin. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, when times are tough, it is always a good idea to head north. Where the hills are glorious, the air is fresh, and the people friendly. Myth undeniably a bit blunt. And that is where we are going now to join Newcastle and the Fairfaxes. But let us make first just a little shimmy via the Eastern Association. This is the association in which Cromwell had had a hand in forming, putting together a small contingent of horse initially. He was 44 at the time. He had absolutely zero military experience. And he was a glorified farmer, after all, without the resources to fund a larger contingent. But it grew because Cromwell was fiercely active and his recruitment methods continued on a line widely remarked on and not necessarily that popular. 
Bulstrode Whitelock made the same observation as the Earl of Manchester, that Cromwell mainly recruited freeholders, and, as Cromwell himself claimed, such men as had the fear of God before them and made some conscience of what they did. And which brings us to a time to roll out another of the much-loved quotes of the civil wars, which came this time when an earl objected to the oiks that Cromwell was recruiting. He received a blunt reply. I had rather have the plain russet-coated captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than that which you call a gentleman and nothing else. I honour a gentleman that is so indeed. It is a good line and one of Cromwell's finer attributes. He is also gathering around him people with whom he will have a long association and fellowship. John Desborough, who married Cromwell's sister Jane, for example. By May 1643, Cromwell's contingent had grown to a full regiment. For future reference, in theory, and it is often only theory, a troop of horse is 100 men. 14 troops together made a regiment, so a regiment is 1,400 at full strength. All of this is in the transcript on the Webberdoodle, should you wish to check these things. By the way, you do know I publish my transcripts, don't you? People were beginning to notice a few things about this regiment of Cromwell's. Firstly, Cromwell seems to have made strenuous efforts not to live off the land he moved through, in the sense that he often borrowed on his own credit to buy provisions for his soldiers locally, expecting them to be recompensed by Parliament, which didn't always happen, of course. He was unusually strict in maintaining discipline among his men. In May, Cromwell was blooded for the first time in a pretty low-key campaign where a couple of other attributes might be noticed about him. Cromwell, it seems, was no shrinking violet. In his first engagement, he seems to have charged and put to flight two experienced and aggressive royalist commanders. Might also be noted that he kept charging. There'll be more on that. In contrast, behind him, the younger nobleman John Hotham failed to charge at all. As a result, the engagement turned into nothing more than a score draw. Now Cromwell expected the same attack and energy that he had from everyone and he saw in the younger John Hotham the same arrogance and lack of commitment as others were noticing in his dad, the governor of Hull. In Cromwell's report to Parliament, he does not hold back. He gives the reason for his success, frequently and repetitively, I have to say, to God, but he would also join with fellow officer John Hutchinson, husband of the Puritan diarist we've heard from before, Lucy Hutchinson, in accusing the younger Hotham of treason through inaction. Hotham resented this low-born bloke, just as his father was horrified at having to take orders from the Fairfaxes. According to one report, Cromwell and Hotham were ready to cut each other's throats. Well, there followed a story. Essex duly sent someone to investigate all this and threw the younger Hotham in jail. Wild accusations were thrown around then by said Hotham, which rather lent weight to suspicions about his dad, the governor of Hull again, parliamentary hero of the early months of 1642 in repelling Charles. The elder Hotham was again rather backward in coming forward to engage in battle with the royalist commander Newcastle. Also, he seems to have been a bit of a letter writer to him, and as we heard in the last episode, chatty with Henrietta Maria, frankly chatty. Someone mentioned that 
hey, those people are on the away team, aren't they? Suspicions aroused. Another of Hotham's parliamentary commanders was ordered to take control of Hull before the elder Hotham could execute what was beginning to look suspiciously like a plan B, a change of team strip. The suspicion was later confirmed by his son's papers. So into the town hurried this new man. He raised the local militia against their commander to arrest him. Now it seems the good citizens of Hull had similar suspicions about their governor's mettle, and they were not impressed. A local writer recorded that Hotham found not so much as one man to lift a hand on his behalf. Treason had been averted. Hull was safe. Hotham was imprisoned and later in 1644 was tried under court-martial by Waller, as it happens, and executed. In June 1643, the younger Hotham had received an urgent request from Thomas Fairfax, begging for help from the parliamentary forces under the Eastern Association. One of Hotham's acts of treachery was then to write to Parliament to say that help was not needed. Newcastle's forces were completely incapable of the task of defeating the Fairfaxes in Yorkshire. Nothing to see here. It's fine. It's fine. Really, it's fine. In fact, of course, Newcastle's forces were amongst the most powerful anywhere, and the royalist cause in the north, so far in the ascendant, that Charles had already written to Newcastle. The business of Yorkshire, I account, almost done. The fact that the Fairfaxes still had a position to defend at all in the north against the Newcastle behemoth was due to a spirit of populism stronger in the clothing towns of West Yorkshire than anywhere in England outside of London. In December, Bradford had looked set to fall to the Royalists. That's December 1642. One observer recalled that all the wealthier parishioners had fled, leaving not a gentleman to commanders. So the inhabitants blocked every avenue leading into the town, sent out spies and watched every move of the enemy. Inhabitants were just armed with clubs, scythes, spits, flails, halberds, sickles laid on long poles and such like rustic weapons. Their defiance drew in people from surrounding towns, Halifax, Bingley, other townships. The attempts of the royalists to take the town got bloody, one officer was unhorsed and cried for quarter. The locals supposedly cried, Aye, they would quarter him, before clubbing him to death. Anything for a good gag, I agree, but that's probably stretching it, I reckon. But Bradford became a national symbol of defiance against royalism back in London. There were some that told Thomas Fairfax not to associate himself with such club law, such populist agency. Elsewhere, in places like Lewis and Sussex, for example, the parliamentarian gentry had deliberately stood aside from this sort of thing, horrified by the level of social independence that club law manifested. Thomas Fairfax diff was different. He saw these people as his own, his constituency. He felt he had a moral responsibility to defend their interests and lead them. And so on the 29th of December, he rode to Bradford with 120 men. This was the making of the Fairfaxes, father and son. In the successes they achieved in holding West Yorkshire against the overwhelming forces of Newcastle and the powerful Yorkshire gentry, widely royalist, they relied a lot on this kind of popular support. In January then, 1643, Thomas Fairfax stormed Leeds and the London newsbox sang of the Bradford men with their clubs and their forks. 
club law also arose in Rotherham, where a royalist contingent was ejected by poorly armed locals in defence of their church against plunder, and it led to something of a local storm, with the estates of royalist gentry being surrounded and attacked by local clubmen, similar actually to the Stour Valley riots against Lordian landowners like the Lucases, which had occurred in Essex. The reliance of the Fairfaxes on popular support drove their strategy in defending towns like Selby and Sheffield. I hope you are all looking at your atlases of Yorkshire. I will try to post one on the website. In May, Fairfax called local men from the clothing manufacturing districts of Leeds, Bradford and Halifax to assemble at Howley Hall and set off to attack Wakefield with 1,500 men, dragoons and foot, believing that the royalist garrison there was only 900 strong and due to fall. He was wrong as it happens. Lord George Goring may have had 5,000 men under his command. But even they were not enough. Thomas Fairfax's resulting capture of Wakefield in close-fought street fighting has been described by historian Andrew Hopper as among the most astounding actions of the entire civil war. The times, though, they were a-changing. The guerrilla was on his way. In June, freed of the task of escorting Henrietta Maria back to Oxford, the Earl of Newcastle made a sharp strategic choice of marching his main force of 12,000 men right into the middle of the Clothing Towns district, slap-bang in a circle of Wakefield, Halifax, Bradford, Leeds. The Fairfaxes had no choice. They had to block his way or they would lose Yorkshire. And so they offered open battle. And at Adwalton Moor, 1643, that is exactly what they did on a well-chosen ground with multiple hedges to slow down the superior royalist cavalry. They were 4,000 soldiers and an unspecified number of clubmen. We just don't know how many there were. On the 30th of June, 1643, at Adwalton Moor, the two armies faced each other. Thomas Fairfax had his wife Anne at his side. I believe I have introduced Anne to you, but a reminder never hurts. She'd been brought up in the Netherlands and was therefore fiercely radical in her Protestantism. She is a powerful character, so much so that in the sexual politics of the time, royalist newsbooks often attacked her for it and mocked Fairfax roundly as being a traitor to his sex and a pawn under his woman's command. In return, Fairfax stoutly defended them both. She was, he wrote, his matchless creature. Well, Fairfax and his wildly outnumbered forces had the best of it. By 11am, they were pushing Newcastle back and pushing Newcastle back. But they began to tire. Numbers began to tell. Newcastle launched a bold counterattack with a regiment of pikemen. It opened a gap in the Fairfax line and it was enough for Newcastle's cavalry to exploit. At Walton Moor was not to be a parliamentary triumph. It was, in fact, a crushing victory for Newcastle and the Royalists. Thomas and Anne fled the battlefield together, initially to Bradford, and then as Royalist forces closed in, they made a daring escape attempt, riding through the Royalist lines at night. In his memoirs, when all was finished in his old age, Thomas Fairfax looked back. I must not forget to mention my wife, who ran as great hazards with us in this retreat as many others, and with little expression of fear. However, in the melee, Thomas and Anne were separated, 
and Anne was captured while riding behind one of Fairfax's officers. She was taken to Newcastle's headquarters, where, of course, being Newcastle, he cheated her very well. By the time of her release the following month, Anne Fairfax was the popular First Lady of the North for the parliamentarian cause, a bona fide heroine. She rather liked it. She revelled it in a bit, played up to it. She gave one of Cromwell's captains a motto of a lady's favour along with the words, Rather die than truth deny. None of this grand stuff, though, could hide the truth. All those precious, west-riding Yorkshire clothing towns had been taken by Newcastle as a result. If Hotham's treachery had not been discovered and so Hull retained for Parliament, it would have been all over in the north outside of Lancashire to the west. As it was, Parliament's cause in the north was on its knees. Which brings us back to t'other end of the country where we started to the southwest, where on the 4th of July the showdown could no longer be delayed. Waller was defending Bath from the deliciously beautiful heights of Lansdowne Hill, Gotta go there. The next day, Hopton attacked up this very steep hill and yet again carried the day through a heroic assault by the Cornish infantrymen despite hideous losses on the way. Waller was forced to withdraw overnight, but he took up a commanding defensive position on Roundway Down. Well, on the 13th of July, part of Hopton's army approached about 1,800 men initially under a bloke called Wilmot and they confidently attacked Waller's 5,000 men, all snuggly-buggly on the top of a hill. Wilmot went for it because he confidently expected Hopton would be attacking from the opposite side of the hill with 3,000 men, but his timing was all wrong. He was soon in deep doo-doos. But they held on, they kept coming. Wilmot's soldiers and their absolute tenacity against superior numbers and position gave Hopton and his cavalry commander's time to outflank them, to panic Waller's army, until at last Hopton himself arrived, and the thing turned into a rout. Roundway Down was a massive victory for the Crown. Parliament's army in the West was utterly destroyed. Any remnants melted away and went back to their homes. Waller himself fled. He recalled it as the most heavy stroke of any that did before me. It had pleased the Lord to turn my victory into mourning and my glory into shame. William the Conqueror was conqueror no more, though, oddly, he was actually received in London later with glowing praise on the 25th of July for his former victories. This drove Essex so potty with fury since he appeared to get the blame for Roundway down as the overall parliamentary commander when it wasn't his fault at all. He was so cross, in fact, he offered to resign. Mercurius Aulicus, the new sheet in Oxford, had an absolute hoot in all of this, glorying in the abject destruction of Parliament's hopes and celebrating that William the Conqueror had fallen and the Battle of Roundway Down was rechristened as the Battle of Runaway Down, which you do have to accept is a bit of a zinger. Even more of a zinger, though, the southwest was now cleared of parliamentary armies and the crucial port city of Bristol lay open to attack. Charles dispatched Prince Rupert with an additional force to link up with Hopton, and by the 24th of July, Bristol was surrounded by overwhelming force. The parliamentarian governor was Nathaniel Fines, a younger son of Say and Seal. Although one of the most important centres outside London because of its trade, its port and its industry, 
Bristol was almost impossible to defend, and within three days, with no hope of relief by Essex, despite very public pleading by women petitioners of the city, actually, Fines and his council of war decided that saving the lives of their men to fight another day was just the only sensible option, and they surrendered and were allowed to march out. When he arrived back in London, Fines was not received with any of the generous support Waller had received. He was briskly given a court-martial and condemned to death. Only the influence of his father, and the generous attitude of the Earl of Essex, actually, saw his sentence reprieved. So by the end of July 1643, Parliament's position had pretty much collapsed. They were left with Essex's army and the relatively small numbers of the Eastern Association, and Charles now had a choice. Was this the moment to go for the big one again, advance on London and end this? Or take a more cautious approach and take instead the city of Gloucester? Now, if that city fell, Parliament would have no major strongholds left in the West. Charles would hold a solid phalanx of land connecting southwest England with all of Wales. So deep was the panic in London that right at the start of the August, the House of Lords agreed a set of peace proposals that were pretty much complete surrender. And when they received it, the Commons didn't kick it straight back with contempt. They agreed instead to consider it. Charles appeared to stand on the edge of victory. Next time we'll hear more of war, I think, though honestly, I am terribly behind here. I haven't written it yet, so who knows, frankly. Hopefully, I will see you all there. I hope you've enjoyed this way too detailed episode. So sorry, but I have to say I loved writing it. Absolute joy and delight. Oh dear. Oh dear. Anyway, look, thanks for playing through it if you did stick it. Good luck and have a great week. Oh, and before I go, so sorry, next week, actually, I've got a guest episode for you. Really lovely episode about Margaret Cavendish. Margaret Cavendish was actually a Lucas that I mentioned in, in Stour Valley, those, the riots there. She marries the Duke of Newcastle. Anyway, she's an amazing woman, extraordinary life and career. And next week, you're going to have an interview with Margaret Oakes, who suggested to me that you should really do a series about Margaret Cavendish. So that's what I'm going to do for members. I'm going to do a series on Margaret Cavendish starting the same week. But next week, all of you for free get my interview with Margaret Oates, who is lovely and really knows her onions as well as Margaret Cavendish. Okay, hopefully I'll see you there. for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 